Today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast is brought to you by NetSuite. Successful companies know faster growth requires the right tools. If you're doing one, ten, or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more, all in one place. Over 19,000 companies trust NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash listen. That's netsuite.com slash listen. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Matt Medica. On this episode, we are discussing starting pitchers in the 100-200 overall range in the NFBC ADP. Last season, there were quite a few big value picks in that range. There were some older pitchers who looked safe, who turned it out to not be safe at all. And then, of course, there were some uh, young pitchers on the rise who fell short of expectations as well. So a really important part of building a pitching staff, a very critical part of your draft. You could also think about these pitchers in auctions as well because they're part of that sort of dangerous second and third tier where uh, things can really go either direction. Quick heads up, this podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you're listening on a platform that allows you to leave us a nice rating and review, we'd greatly appreciate it if you did that. Matt, how's it going for you on this Monday? Uh, it's going really well. I'm very excited seeing uh, photos of pitchers and catchers reporting. One more day closer to real baseball. My uh, starting pitcher preview part two should drop uh, tonight or early tomorrow morning. Excellent. Definitely looking forward to that. And this conversation kind of dovetails with that pretty nicely. Uh, looking at the ADP from last season, looking just at the main event drafts, which if you played on the NFBC, you can actually find those historical ADPs now. You used to have to kind of save them on your own at the end of draft season and hold them on a spreadsheet. But there were some big surprises in both directions. In, in the early part of that range, Charlie Morton, of course, was a big hit. He had an ADP of 115. Luis Castillo was there at 116 a year ago in the main uh, if you go further down, you find some guys that really let people down, though. Uh, Nick Pavetta is probably the the best example of that. He had an ADP inside the top 140, and he didn't even finish the season with a spot in the Phillies rotation. Uh, some old guys that we thought would be effective and, and just kind of consistent, like Jay Happ and Cole Hamels, they were disappointments at costs around pick 145 and 150. And then there were some smash picks as you went further down in the back of the the top 200 Hinjin Ryu this time last year had an ADP of 170 I mean, he was a league winning sort of pick if you went that route uh, so how important do you think this range of the draft is is it kind of the critically important part of building a pitching staff uh yeah absolutely I really uh try and focus on this not just with pitchers, especially with hitters as well, but we'll focus on in uh, pitching today. I think when you get towards the, you know, uh, that seventh round to like 15th round or maybe even a little later, you are, those are kind of like money rounds where if you hit on some of these guys, they're going to propel you to possible championships or at least keep you in the running all season and the ability to cash. Yeah, I think that it's an area where you start to get kind of fixated on uh, potential. You know what a what a pitcher or player can be, uh, and it's okay to do that because you can make a few mistakes in this area, but you can't make too many because eventually you just don't have enough value on your team to keep pace with the other top teams in your league. But let's start at the top of that range in 2020. Zach Wheeler is sitting with an ADP that is a little bit later than I would have expected. I mean, for for as much as I like him as a pitcher, uh, I know moving into Philadelphia makes his job more difficult. It's a very hitter-friendly environment. It boosts up home runs, especially. An ADP of 118 on Zach Wheeler, though, actually seems like a relative bargain for a guy that I looked at as an SP2 before we knew where he was going to pitch this season. Well, the thing with Wheeler is, I mean, there's a lot to like, but it's never coalesced over a full season. And he, uh, one of the things I noticed when doing the research, he's not like city field dependent. He was pretty evenly split uh, d down the line. 
And I think one of the biggest attributes to his game is the innings he will provide. And a couple of years ago, we would never have said that. But uh, over the past two years, his ability to go seven innings or more uh, has really been something. So that's a characteristic that is crucial in roster construction. And one of the things I'm happy, I was kind of worried Nanda would want me in this second edition of my uh, starting pitcher preview to put the rankings on the players I have in this thing. I did not. I basically gave you the data. I put my commentary. Because I think once you get into this range, it's about constructing your rotation more than anything. Right. And I think to kind of dive into that point just a little bit further, we should bring up some specific examples. I mean, if you have a rotation where you went lighter in strikeouts, let's say you started off your rotation with Zach Greinke. You waited a little bit on pitching. Maybe you went four hitters to kick things off. You took Zach Greinke in the fifth, and you're still waiting to get that second starter. Maybe you popped a closer and a couple more hitters before you get to this pick 100 range. You would definitely want to think more about someone who's going to bring a lot of strikeouts for that second pitcher than you might if you'd started with you know Noah Syndergaard or, or someone who's going to be a, a bigger asset in that particular category, right? So it might be the kind of thing where you know, Mike Soroka doesn't pair particularly well with Zach Greinke, but he pairs pretty well with Noah Syndergaard. Is that kind of what you're referring to here? Uh, yes, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, a lot of these guys I wouldn't want as my number two. I would want them as number threes or later. But as you mentioned, like a Zach Granke, and say you had somebody else, but you still felt you needed more strikeouts. That's where a guy that, you know, I'm not really a fan of, but I think comes into play is, say, Robbie Ray, who has struck out, you know, 200 batters three of the last four seasons and basically has league average ratios now. It's not like I know everybody thinks, you know, he just walks everybody and stuff, but his ratios are league average now. Yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it, that we've we've come to that point with Robbie Ray. But yeah, he's, he's the perfect example of a, a guy you can get at a reasonable price and he's going to help you bridge the gap in strikeouts. It might also work too if you... You didn't get elite strikeout closers. I mean, I think sometimes people don't really account for the surpluses and Ks they get from, you know, like a Josh Hader if they mm-hmm. invest early uh, compared to even just a, a Ken Giles, which is not a knock on Giles. It's just realizing how much more you're getting from Josh Hader and uh, that, that needs to be accounted for as you're building your pitching staff as well. Like what kinds of strikeout contributions are you getting from your closers? Uh, the other interesting name, though, near the top of this group, I mentioned Wheeler before. Frankie Montes was pitching pretty much like a fantasy ace before the suspension last season. If you look at those ratios, you look at that strikeout rate, you consider that he had that third pitch, had the splitter working for him. He looked like he'd kind of figured everything out before his season was cut short. Again, his own fault, but still, uh, I'm a little surprised to see him available after pick 100 as well. What do you think is leading to this depressed price on Montes? Is it Merely the suspension, or is there something more? Uh, I think the suspension is still fresh in everybody's mind, but I think it's the track record. You know, you're only going to see like 96 innings pitched last season, but I believe in the in the gains that he achieved. Uh, the the track record would give me more pause than the PED suspension. I mean, he basically the splitter is what changed everything for him. Also, he did add the velocity. So maybe if you're saying the added velocity is due to the PED suspension and all that, I can, you know, I can understand that narrative. But as I like to do in my, you know, whatever I'm doing in my articles, I like to put some of my tweets in there and other people's tweets. And I put one from Alex Chamberlain, an extremely smart guy, and something he said last year how, you know, Montas would be depressed and he was going to pounce all over it. So there's just some other food for thought. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think he's an important piece of Oakland's rotation. There's not a major workload concern relative to how few innings he's actually thrown at the big league level over the last three seasons. I think they're comfortable letting him work every fifth day, maybe giving him a breather around the all-star break, something along those lines. But I do think what he did last year was 
largely real. So I'm definitely in on Frankie Montas at that price. A couple of older, boring guys. I mentioned how a few of them, Jay Happ and Cole Hamels in particular, were disappointments near this range last year. Lance Lynn is coming off of a massive 2019 season. I mean, he did some things that I don't think anybody would have expected, even the most optimistic Lance Lynn owners. The ratios were pretty good. The whip was kind of just okay. 367 ERA, 122 whip, but 246 strikeouts in 208 in the third innings for him. Uh, 28.1% K rate was the highest we'd seen from him over a full season in the big leagues. The only time he was better than that was when he made his debut way back in 2011, and that was only 34 and two-thirds innings. Uh, As you look at Lance Lynn, expecting him to repeat a career year in terms of the, the Ks especially is probably asking for too much, but where are you setting the bar for 2020 for him? See, Lance Lynn uh, actually made it into my uh, part one of the starting pitcher preview. He was a top 36 starter for me. Wheeler was as well, but I'm higher on Lynn because Lynn made adjustments that started pretty much in the latter half of 2018 when he was with the Yankees. And addition by subtraction is something I really believe in. I will weigh more recent stuff higher. I mean, I look at three-year averages and stuff, but I think a lot of people get lost on that because you're missing real changes. Will it always stick? Absolutely not. Does everything always work? No. But I I think there's a lot to be glistened. If If a hitter or a pitcher makes a concerted change to their swing approach or their arsenal and their success, I think that needs to be taken or weighed more heavily. I'm not afraid of the ballpark this year. I'm going to assume it's neutral. They're going to have a dome. You're not going to have 90-degree weather at 7 p.m. anymore. It'll be controlled. So I think there's a lot to like with Lynn. As I put in the in last week's article, my commentary was, he's one of the preferred pockets of profitability that you need to be looking at in your drafts. So he's somebody that I think I might have ranked like 30 or around there that I, I really wanted to put higher, and I have no objection if somebody puts him higher than that. I've wondered about this pretty much all winter. Are the Rangers pitchers as a whole just a little bit underpriced because the market is not correctly adjusting expectations for Arlington? I, I expect it to be at least more pitcher-friendly, or I should say it this way. I expect <laughs> that park to be less hitter-friendly than it was, even if it's still above average for hitters because of the reasons you mentioned. Having a roof, having climate-controlled games will, I think, make it play a lot like Chase Field with the humidor. We had to come up with a comp. It's still going to be more humid inside the ballpark in Arlington than it will be in Arizona for some pretty obvious reasons. But, I mean, Mike Miner is another guy that has put together a pretty nice run since signing with the Rangers. I think at the time of that contract, a couple off-seasons ago, there were some people that looked at that and said, yeah, I don't really know if he's going to be an effective starter again, but it's been a nice run for him, and I think there's a good chance he's underpriced as well. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this because as excited as I am for Lynn, I'm really less excited for Minor. And the thing with Corey Kluber is we really just don't know. I think Kluber's range of outcomes are enormous. I have repeated that prior. But with Mike Minor. Uh, what you'll see in my article is I did a month-by-month strikeout minus walk percentage, ERA, FIP, XFIP, and Sierra. And, you know, there was a lot of warning signs there leading up to that second-half collapse. Uh, I think maybe we're drafting him for volume, which is kind of crazy, you know, being that he was an injury-prone guy prior. But, you know, he did get to 200 innings and 200 strikeouts. But mine is a guy that I'm less excited about than most are. It's interesting. I mean, the K rate's a, a little on the, the low side uh, in a typical year. I mean, you go back to 2018, 7.6 Ks per nine is is not really anything to get excited about. And there are some major durability concerns. He missed two full seasons with injuries in 2015 and 2016 uh, through 77 and two-thirds innings in his comeback year with the Royals. That was entirely as a reliever and then has made 60 starts combined now of the last two seasons going up over 360 innings during that span. So uh, expecting more than 180 seems risky, and there is obviously some downside if if things with his arm come back. But uh, it seems a little bit more stable than skills-wise, that is, than people might be giving him credit for. Kind of shooting back up to that Lance Lynn, Frankie Montas range, though. Madison Bumgarner 
in a Diamondbacks uniform, which is going to look weird. Like the first time we see that in spring training, that's just not going to look right because I, I thought Madison Bumgarner would be uh, a giant forever. I think he's one of those guys that because he was great at his peak and even kind of worked his way up into the first two rounds of drafts a few years ago, we have unfair expectations for him as he ages. Where do you fall on Bumgarner for 2020? Do you actually see him as a slightly undervalued starter? Uh, Actually, I wrote, I don't envision this version of Bumgarner on any of my teams. I know he got to that 200 inning, 200 strikeout plateau for the first time since 2016. The last two seasons, he's really been a Jekyll and Hyde. He's pitched very well at Oracle Park. Terrible on the road. This is a this is one of the better landing spots for him, though, going to Arizona. But I rather go in uh, different directions than Bumgarner this season. And he's a guy that I've always loved watching pitch and all that. But I'm maybe I'm a little bit of an ageist and all that. I just don't like the age curve with him and how his game has, you know, evolved. And we're talking about a guy who's thrown. 1,846 regular season innings in his career. Obviously, they've been in the playoffs a lot, so you factor those innings in as well. And we're almost at 2,000 big league innings for a guy who is only 30 years old, but uh, it's an old 30 because of how quickly he got to the big leagues and just how much of a workhorse he was throughout his time with the Giants. A couple of young guys in that range, a teammate of Madison Bumgarner's, Zach Gallen and Jesus Lazardo. I think we talked about Lazardo on the episode last Monday for a bit, but Gallen kind of seems like he's one of those guys that most of the fantasy community likes. Uh, do you share that? As you break him down, do you see him as a guy that could be significantly more expensive this time next year? Uh, yes, I do. I snuck him in at 36. He was the the last player, I believe. He might have been 35. Well, 35 or 36. I just, I like the skill set. I think it's a, he can really succeed here. He went from the Marlins to Arizona, which if you look, since this humidor has come into play, Derek Hardy has been correct. So all the haters out there, Derek Hardy has been correct. It, it is a good pitcher's park, and he, he made those improvements. I, I know the chase rate went up when he moved to, uh, Arizona, and the first pitch strike was elite. So this is a guy that I am buying. I'd rather have Gallon over Bumgarner. I know a lot of others probably disagree with that, but I'm pretty confident in in that one. That's interesting. Yeah, so you, you see him maybe as the most valuable starter on that team this year? I think that's a really good possibility. I uh, Like I said, I, I think this is a kid that, you know, he wasn't up until last season where he really got that notoriety. But I like what he did. I like the adjustments he made in season at the major league level. Uh, I forget what it was. I wrote it last week. I've just been through so many pitches right now. But he did make an adjustment, and I always look for that. The other guy on this team I would love to see is Luke Weaver be healthy. And it's a guy I really like, but you know he got he was out for three months, pitched two innings. I know he came back, but it was only two innings. But I do like the young uh, arms in this rotation. I heard uh, Paul Sporer from the Sleeper in the Bus podcast talking about that. I think with Justin Mason on an episode not that long ago, like the that little bit of comfort you get from an injured pitcher making it back and just getting on the mound, even one time before season's end. It changes a lot about how you, you view that player for the following season. At least that was something Paul was saying applies to him. But I, I kind of subscribe to that too, where if we don't see that pitcher make it back, there's that lingering doubt about the magnitude of the injury, right? But if the pitcher comes back from an injury that knocked them out for a few months, makes a start or two, or make even a relief appearance in September, the the way Paul phrased it, I think, is, is dead on. It, it's like the team was comfortable enough putting the pitcher out there because the recovery had happened. You know, it, they didn't feel like they were exposing him to unnecessary risk by having him pitch in what was then a meaningless game. So uh, I think Luke Weaver is one of those guys where you know, he's in this cluster, kind of at the back end, 175 to 200 range overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you compared him to, say, like Lance McCullers, I think that's actually a pretty fair sort of toss-up. And it's the sort of thing where if we're thinking about pitching staff construction, I don't want too many guys like that who have recent arm injuries in their past on my roster, but if I'm going to take a shot like that, 
that's the right price to go ahead and do it. And I think in Weaver's case, there were a lot of things to like about what he was doing before the injury struck last season. Yeah, no, absolutely. Paul is right. I, it, there is a confidence factor there. But again, it's still only two innings. And like I said, I'm excited about Weaver. Uh, I really, you know, he was one of those guys last year when you were watching him pitch. You've seen the transformation. You've seen the usage of the cutter. The change got even better. So, yeah, hopefully. Let's talk about Jesus Lazardo for a moment. I'm 99% sure you and I talked about him a week ago. And the more I look at him, I like what he can do as a pitcher. I just don't want him on my team <laughs> at this year's prices, which is, is frustrating. So maybe in an auction, I'll end up with him. But uh, in that case, you know, I'd, I'd want to have the security or at least the perceived security of guys who can max out their workloads. Because you start to fall short in that innings category. You do get replacements, of course. If, if we know when Lizardo is going to be shut down, if they're clear about their schedule and their plans for him, you do get a replacement, so you're not taking zeros necessarily. Uh, but with the ADP creeping into that 125 range since January 15th, can you buy Jesus Lizardo at that price in a typical NFBC-style league? For me, the only way Lizardo's on my team is if I have a really strong starting pitching foundation. If I have, if maybe I took, say, whoever, uh, DeGrom, a Bueller, a Verlander in that, you know, first round, early second, got another really solid arm, then I'm more apt to add a Lazardo to it. Cause I mean, look, the innings expectation and inexperience is just a lot to ask. That's why I think it makes him a unique asset and team dependent. But if you witness what he did last year, everybody's drooling over that. And I and I totally get it. And the, the counter-argument is he could be this year's Chris Paddock. So I totally understand it. But, you know, that's everything's got to go right here. Right. Everything has to go right. And, and the key difference, I think, between those two is like, this time last year, Chris Paddock was breaking projection systems. I remember you mentioned Derek Carty, his system, the bat, mm-hmm. spit out a projection that was just kind of absurd for a pitcher who hadn't reached the big leagues yet. That made me pretty excited because projections are usually pretty conservative on young players like that. Uh, and with Paddock being in San Diego especially, that made it kind of easier to, to buy into the possibility that uh, he'd be excellent on a perning basis. Now, he may have reached his top 5% outcome last year on a per inning basis. I think he's one of those guys who needs a third pitch. It's easy to then look at Lizardo and say, well, he's got a more well-rounded arsenal, so maybe he's got a better chance of exceeding that. I just, I look at that and I think, I don't, I don't know if I believe that. I, I just, I see, I see too many ways it can go wrong with the workload. Uh, just because the A's, they've got kind of an unusual pitching staff, but they've got some interesting depth in the minors. Uh, Dalton Jeffries, James Caprillion, a lot of young guys that all need to be monitored very carefully. And I think you might have problems on a start-by-start basis with a lot of those guys where they're going to go four and change or five innings. Mm -hmm. They're going to be susceptible. Unless they're throwing openers in front of those guys, they're going to be susceptible to just missing out on opportunities to pile up wins as well. And as much as I hate to chase them, that's just the simple reality of what that team is dealing with. Yeah, I mean, for me, I know somebody will probably talk about a little later. I just think this is the year that uh, Julio Yoris is um, unleashed. So I kind of like his price like 40 picks later. You know, that's, you know, almost three rounds, two rounds later at least. So if I'm going to take this shot, I'm probably going to go that route. Because so, you can't have both on your team. I mean, you can, but it's not something that I'm going to do. <laughs> right. If you have both, I mean, you probably already grabbed two high-volume starters, and you must feel really confident that you can either find extra quality bats later on or maybe you're waiting on saves a little bit. But I, I think you're you're putting yourself in a pretty vulnerable spot if you go down that road. Uh, I'm with you, though. On Julio Urias, I mean, I think this is his year. Um, similar workload concerns exist, but if I can get what I think is a very similarly skilled player 40 picks later, I'm going to do that every single time. I think the concern I would have is that you know sitting here on February 10th that ADP is is nice right now I think it's <laughs> going to be kind of similar to Lizardo's by the time we get to those final draft weekends in March 
Yeah, it's it's funny how those things happen. Like like I always tell people, there's two ADPs: the one we're experiencing now, and then those last couple of weeks. It's gonna change. It's you know you're gonna see the like I'll say like a guy who was in this range last year. I think he went 109. For everybody that says Nick Pavetta was a bust, Shane Bieber was like 109 or 110 ADP, and now he's like the eighth starting pitcher off the board. So. And Bieber went like $15 in auctions. He went up into the seventh round. So guys that people like are going to move up and move up su- substantially in the NFBC universe. I'll, I could put that little hashtag to that or a little whatever. And, and under those circumstances, you have to be willing, if you want some of these guys, to walk in there with that ex- expectation in your mind. Let's talk about another guy that I think has the potential to shoot up a couple of rounds. It's Max Freed. And I'm hearing analysis from all different corners of the baseball universe, even outside of fantasy, where the general opinion of Max Freed seems to be that he is on his way to becoming an ace in this Atlanta rotation. 173 Ks in 165 and two-thirds innings last year. Uh, 402 ERA, uh, 133 whip. So the ratios were kind of just average but the strikeouts were there and there were some changes to his pitch mix in the second half that had people excited he also cut his walk rate in half which you know it's easier to do when you start with a a walk rate over five but a 2.6 walks per nine mark from max freed is something that i think we would have been surprised by if someone forecasted that this time a year ago Uh, are you in on max freed as one of those guys that could take a a bieber-like leap or at least a a big step forward and, and jump into the top 100 for league's this time next year. I, I basically want Max Fried on every team I do this year. He, last year, you mentioned Bieber. I had Bieber in my initial rankings at 25. I think I have Max Fried maybe like 23 or 24. Uh, I think you watched a young kid who had the pedigree, you know, had the arm injuries early on, uh, make that, as you said, he made the adjustments. From those last nine starts, it's a small sample, but from those last nine starts, the slider usage was 20%. The strikeout percentage overall was 30%. The curveball he has, uh, he even implemented the sink more. That's why when I'm doing this, I am really looking at their arsenals. I want to see what changed. Prior to last year, Two things that stuck out to me. I really don't watch much spring training, but I'm always listening to things. And Brian McCann said that Max Fried was the real deal. Freddie Freeman raved about this kid, said he was going to be great. And I look, the fastball was, was getting hit. But we've seen guys like Bieber have bad fastballs and, and, and other people get their fastballs hit. But he's making that adjustment where you go to the secondary stuff around that 50% of the time. You're not throwing the fastball 60% of the time now. That makes a huge difference. Uh, I'm really excited about this kid, and I'm willing to follow him up the board. I put in my notes in the article last week, he is methodically moving up the draft board, and I expect a higher tax come March. So I I don't think I can give a more glowing uh, thing about any pitcher right now that I'm more excited for than Max Reed as a young guy. Freed's min pick since January 15th is 107. Are you pretty confident that someone's going to break that at least at some point between now and opening day? Uh, it, I mean, look, that could possibly happen. I, I get aggressive. Last year, I set the min pick in New York at the main on Paddock. I took him with the second pick of the or the, or the second to last pick of the 10th t- round or right before that, whatever it was. I, I'm not afraid to be aggressive on certain plays, especially if I have a foundation. That's why, you know, that's why I think, look, I'm not going to force pitching, but if I have that fifth pick, it's tough to pass up on, say, a Mookie Betts or a Lindor or Cody Bellinger and all that. I get it. But when you're playing, especially in a, with no trades and all that, a DeGrom or a Cole is just such a fantastic base that allows you and affords you many different luxuries as the board plays out. So, look, uh, yeah, Freed, I, I think the 107, it'll be closer to that, maybe more 120, but there will be some people here or there that will uh, definitely jump in and maybe set a new min. As far as DeGrom versus Cole goes, I've been asking a lot of people, you know, which side of that they fall. And if you get the choice, you know, you, you have to pick 
one. Who would you prefer if you're going to be, take the first pitcher off the board? Look, I'm going to take DeGrom, and here's why. He's not changing teams. I think Garrett Cole will succeed in New York. I'm not afraid of any of that. And Cole's going to strike out more hitters. But DeGrom has posted a sub-250 ERA with 250 strikeouts or more in back-to-back seasons. There's very few pitchers that have done that. Also, if you look at the last two seasons, he's pretty much been identical. Yes, the XFIP and Sierra have gone up a little bit. But all his other you know traits, all his other skills and stats have pretty much been identical with the exception of of the home run ball, which basically doubled last year. So I'm going to take the security of DeGrom. He's in 550 innings pitched at City Field. He has like a 220 ERA. So I I know that going in. So that's why I'll take DeGrom. If I'm doing, if I was in that spot and I had, you know, five drafts where I picked five and I had to make that choice, I would throw in a coal too. I'm not going to say, you know, I don't want any coal because that's not true. But it's more the stability and the security, and I'll sacrifice some strikeouts and stuff, and and, and some wins. So you're looking at like an 80% split on DeGrom over multiple teams where you had the same opportunity to yes. choose. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. I'd, I'm, I'm starting to hear a little more of that as we've moved further into draft season. Uh, let's return to... Eduardo Rodriguez's neighborhood, as we should call. It. I think he's been in the same range for ADP for about three years running, uh, and he stays there even after his first 200 inning season in 2019. 203 and a third, uh, 381 ERA again in the year of the rabbit ball. The home run rate actually came down just a little bit, basically the exact same rate that he had in 2018. But 213 Ks, a sub four ERA, but a 133 WHIP, the worst WHIP we've seen from Eduardo Rodriguez in his five years in Boston. Is this just as good as it gets for Erod, or is there still one more level that some of us have been hoping for for years that can can finally be reached? I mean, if you look at the skill set last year, like I like to break it down, pre and post All-Star break, it was basically that left on base percentage that really influenced that era. He had the 465 ERA in the first half, a 295 in the second half. He had a 72% left on base in the first and 83.5% in the second. I mean, the BABIP wasn't, you know, didn't really change much. The The walks actually went up in the second half. So uh, for me, he's, if, if this is what I wrote, and I, I think it was one of the easy. If Rodriguez just replicates last season, that's a very productive pitcher. Just go chase, just don't go chasing his wins or waterfalls. So he's a guy I like. He's an inning. He could be that inning eater guy, you know, as long as that knee is healthy, which it seems like. But I'm not going to project. I'm not going to keep saying he's going to be better and better. I think he is who he is right now. Yeah, I've sort of come to accept that after a few years of expecting more from him. I, I think at least he proved he could stay healthy for a full season after dealing with a lot of knee issues in particular uh, throughout most of his first five years with the Red Sox. Interesting thing to do, too, just one other kind of side note here. As I look at pitchers from a multi-year perspective, I do like to go to fan graphs and pull up a multi-year leaderboard and sort by something like K-BB percentage. As you're building your rankings, you know how, how important are some of those metrics? Like what, what comes up first for you as you start to put things together? The first thing I'm going to look at is strikeout minus work percentage, and then you then I'll break it down, especially for like the second half. I'll do like fit minimum fifty uh, innings. So I'll look at a guy just to throw it in there. When you when you look at the second half last year, minimum fifty innings pitched. Andrew Heaney pops off. He has a 24% uh, strikeout minus walk percentage. Cut his walk rate basically in half in the second half. But this is a kid that, you know, we all like, and he's one of those guys that you're going to take a shot on with the hope that he can get that, you know, get those innings again. He pitched 180, what, two two years ago? But that's the roadblock. Can he take that ball every fifth day for a full season? So the, the more stability you have, the, the greater luxury you have to take the Andrew Heaney's or if Matt Boyd can make that correction. Like, if you look at, I'm going to put it, it's in my thing, Matt Boyd's curveball was just god-awful. He threw it like 5.5%. His changeup, which he threw 5.5%, was a hell of a lot better. 
I don't know how it'll be over ex- extended use. So I'm not saying the change is going to be great, but maybe just eliminating the curveball and adding the change makes a world of difference for him. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that is a possibility. Yeah, a lot of the guys we're going to talk about in the back half of this episode are guys that come up pretty high on that multi-year K minus BB percent leaderboard. It's kind of weird. You mentioned Matthew Boyd. I'm a little bit skeptical of him just because I, I wonder if if he can't throw the change up more. I'm not sure he has any other weapons he can turn to. Like I kind of think the league solved him. It's something I talked about with Eno on, on rates and barrels uh, last week about. I just the team's also bad, so it makes it kind of an easy cop out to just say, "Yeah, I don't like the run support, I don't like the bullpen, and I'm I'm skeptical of the player." So he's an easy avoid. But you know, there's a bunch of guys that are right around him. He's got a 19.8 percent K minus BB over the last two seasons. He's right there with Kenta Maeda. He's right there with Hinjin Ryu. He's right there with Clayton Kershaw even for the last two seasons in that particular stat. Andrew Heaney's not far off that at 19.3 percent. I think there are a lot of guys that look very similar when you just break them down to that one number, but then when you start to more carefully look at their situations, you find things that you really like or really don't like. With Heaney, I wonder if he's like another Erod, where maybe there's some extra pedigree there, so we keep thinking he can have this massive breakthrough. He might just be a good pitcher who won't ever really have a great season, and at his price, that's going to be okay, but you are taking on a pretty good bit of injury risk when you look back at what has caused him to miss time over the years. Yeah, no, just to, because we're talking about Boyd and Heaney, I mean, a guy who's priced even cheaper, who on the surface was just ugly, but underneath was really attractive in a small sample size, is a Mitch Keller. And like I said, these guys that we're talking about are guys, you know, I want to have, you know, a couple of these guys later on on my team, or at least one of them, but it has to, my, my construction to that point has to afford me that. Otherwise, you know, I'm really just taking on way too much risk. Let's talk about Herman Marquez for a second. I mean, for me, he's a green eggs and ham player. Like, I just, I can't, <laughs> I can't bring myself to roster him because I don't want to use him for his home starts. Uh, if I were in maybe like an NL only league and the price came down a little bit, sure, because, you know, the the bar that you have to clear for ratios isn't nearly as high, but I would like him so much more, just like everybody else, if he got traded. And until that happens, I don't think I will have Herman Marquez on a team. How do you handle a guy that has such great skills but has such a terrible setup having to pitch half his games at Coors? Yeah, look, last year I basically avoided him in my solo main in Vegas. I only took him because it was like the 10th pick of the sixth round. And at that point... I only had Aaron Nola. I was really kind of – usually I have a couple of pitchers at least at, at that point. And I said, you know what, let's just go with the skills here and I'll try and, you know, w- work from this point. And this year I pretty much said as good as he can be, it's not worth it, – it's, it's a fight I don't want to have. Why am I going to put myself in this predicament? I know w- he's got half those starts at cores – and I just don't want to do it. You know, people, I know you, you hear some, you can still make up your whip a little as the season goes on in your ERA. For me, it's like the hardest thing to do. Watching, you know, you start out with a bad ERA and a bad whip, it is really hard to get out of that hole. You're going to need to hit that Lucas Giolito this year to really give you a hand. So I'm really, you know, I try and be careful with, with, with those two categories. If you look at that leaderboard, I set it up as I described before. Minimum 200 innings pitched, multi-year 2018 and 2019, and then sorted by K minus BB on Fangraph. So if you want to just pull it up and look at it, you'll see what I'm seeing right now. Herman Marquez is one of 23 pitchers with a strikeout minus walk rate above 20% over the last two seasons. He's in good company. That's where you want to be. Of those 23 pitchers, Herman Marquez has the highest ERA at 423 and the highest whip at 120 of the entire group. It's there not his go. fault. It's the ballpark. You just you can't you cannot beat Coors over the long run. That's it, unfortunate. He's he's a guy that if he if he were in a neutral environment, if, if, if he pitched in Philly instead of instead of in Colorado, he'd probably be a top 15, top 20 pitcher. Like that's that's how good I think those skills really are. But he's just 
a horrible player to try and use pretty much in all mixed leagues, and it's not his fault. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you're going to get some nice bargains on him in auctions where if he's just a few dollars and you want to take that shot, I get it. But it's just, like I said, it's a battle I don't want to take. And a guy we're going to talk about, he doesn't fall into that extreme, but a very skillful pitcher in a new place is Hunjin Ryu. Yeah, that's the that's the big question. We're going to get to the uh, the, the Twins and, and well, the changes to the Twins and Dodgers rotations in just a minute. But Hinjin Ryu leaving Los Angeles and going into the AL East, not necessarily Rogers Center in particular. I think that park's a little more neutral than people realize. It has a reputation from Jose Bautista's peak and uh, Donaldson and Encarnacion just mashing there as being this extreme hitter-friendly environment. It's not quite how it plays. But having to go on the road to face the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, having to go on the road even to pitch against the crappy Orioles at Camden Yards, it becomes a much more difficult environment. The league change is a negative as well. Everything kind of went right for you a year ago. The price really hasn't jumped that much, though. Like I would say the recency bias on Ryu's price is a lot less extreme than it tends to be for guys coming off of a career-best year. 50th pitcher off the board since January 15th. That includes some relievers in there as well. So probably about the 40th starter once you filter those off. At pick 135, is that a fair price where you're actually comfortable with Ryu? Or is that still too expensive when you account for the change in environment? Uh, it's it's one I'm torn with because I think he's really skillful. And if you go back to August of 2018, that's over his last 35 starts. Uh, or so. He's got a 220 ERA, 216 strikeouts, 29 walks. It's just, it's not even Roger said, like you said, it's even going into Camden Yards, his, he's, his window is just narrower to make mistakes going into Yankee Stadium and stuff. So I, I think it's a fair price. I have to say it's a fair price. It's just, I'm going to have hesitations at time pulling the trigger here. I'll be honest with that. He lives right next door to Eduardo Rodriguez in Erod's neighborhood, as I've called it, ADP 135 and 137 for those two guys. If you choose between the two, Ryu and Rodriguez for 2020, who do you like? I'm going to go Ryu. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Ryu and take my chances there. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that one. They both have pretty major injuries in their past as well, so I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between uh, what they bring risk-wise in their respective profiles. Let's talk about a guy who kind of fits the description of a younger pitcher we described earlier. We talked about Mike Soroka as someone who's kind of going early in this group, doesn't miss a ton of bats. I think you can maybe forecast some growth given how young he is, but the more recent version of Mike Soroka is Kyle Hendricks, and he's Mm -hmm. just outside the top 150. At this point, you know you're not going to get a big bump in strikeouts. He kind of just is what he is. Do you like Hendricks as a stabilizer in this range, or do you see too many ways for it to go wrong for him to trust him at that price? No, see, I think Hendricks is a really useful pitcher, someone that's always a target for me, especially at this price. And this is, I think, the cheapest we've ever gotten him at. My only problem is the margin of error is razor thin. When you throw 86.9, you know, I understand he knows how to paint and it's beautiful. If you want to just watch it from that aspect, he does a fantastic job. I know Todd Zola chimed in and his tunneling ability is excellent as well. So this is a pitcher that knows what he's doing. He has a game plan and is executing it. Now, here's the thing. If you went with a Jesus Lazardo at, say, 120, and you got a Kyle Hendricks, you know, a round or two later, that's a pretty nice combination for me. I'm really liking that because now I know I got a guy that's usually going to give me innings. I believe, you know, what over the last few years, 850 innings or more, he's like one of nine pitchers to have a 320 ERA or less. And the names in that are pretty uh, – a pretty a pretty much fantastic pitcher. So he's in some rarefied air uh, in this in this scenario. Yeah, here you go. Here's a, a four-year leaderboard for pitchers with at least 400 innings. Kyle Hendricks is seventh in ERA. So he's got a 301 ERA since the start of, of 2016. The only pitchers who've been better are Kershaw, DeGrom, Scherzer, Verlander, Kluber, and Rich Hill. Uh, so kind of interesting that Hill's the other 
outlier on that list. And there's even a, a .15 difference before you get to the next pitcher behind Hendricks. That's Chris Sale. I mean, the guys just after him, Sale, Clevenger, Snell, mm-hmm. Strasburg, Morton, those guys are all early round pitchers. So, yeah, you're not getting strikeouts. And we know in the NFBC, like strikeouts are very important, but it just seems like there might be a little yeah. bit of an overcorrection happening here that's not accounting for how good Hendricks is. And he's not just like an ERA guy that has a bad whip. The whip's usually pretty good uh, for him as well. Can I just say one thing real quick about like how you're setting your rotation up as we go through it? Not every pitcher needs to be a hero. You know, role players are needed to fortify the infrastructure and, you know, because basically you're going to need guys that aren't going to kill you, that are going to give you the innings, can strike out a batter per inning and stuff as you go through it. But Hendricks is always a guy that I have in the back of my mind. If he's still on the board, I if I can get him, I know I have that stabilizer piece. And look, everybody you get on the team isn't going to be able to strike out 200 guys or have a K-9 of 12-plus. You, you, it's just never going to work out that way. And if you, you do strategize it that way, you're, you're probably going to be taking on a lot of risk and a lot of guys that aren't going to make it through the season. I mean, think of it this way. like Chris Paddock, throwing 140 and two-thirds innings last year, struck out 153 batters, had a 333 ERA, and a .98 whip. And... Hendricks is capable of, of matching those ratios. The projections for Paddock this year are kind of mid to high threes ERAs and 117 whip, I think, in, at Steamer, 111 at ATC. So th- those are those are Hendricks ratios with probably 30 fewer innings or 30 more innings than last year, so 170 or so. I mean, the difference between those two guys in terms of what they're actually going to give you is probably a lot smaller than people realize. Like I, I like Chris Paddock a lot. I'm not trying to, to shade Chris Paddock. I'm just trying to highlight the fact that you can have a low K rate like Kyle Hendricks, and if you're going to get 180 or 190 innings, it bridges the gap in strikeout rate pretty quickly when the workload ends up being higher than some of the young starters. I think this is exactly where Jesus Lazardo comes up again, who are going to pitch maybe even 40 or 50 fewer innings by comparison. Yeah, and real quick, just because you mentioned Paddock, that thing I saw yesterday from The Athletic, I forget who did it. Uh, my apologies. Uh, it was brought to my attention. And he's saying, you know, he's working on, he's working on that curve, which is needed. If he's going to continue this success, he's working on the curve. He doesn't see any uh, restrictions this year as far as workload. He's calling it a top-shelf curve. If it is a top-shelf curve, then game over, in my opinion, because I think this kid knows how to pitch. A guy like Rick Porcello didn't have the ratio, didn't have the ERA really, but every year, because of the volume he pitched, you know, he pitched over 180 innings and got 180 strikeouts. So you just need needed Porcello to have a four ERA or less, and he was a very valuable pitcher. As the ERAs went up, you know, on the season average, as long as he could be four or less, he was a tremendous value giving you those innings and the strikeouts. And I would say with Hendricks, I mean, we know the walk rate is generally very good, if not elite, and he's shown an ability to keep the ball in the park. Maybe Wrigley Field with the wind blowing in is is helping in that regard, but he's only had one season where his home run rate has been over one homer per nine. So he possesses these other skills that I think stabilize those ratios in a way that makes me pretty comfortable. I'm, I'm glad that he's discounted right now. Uh, I think he's great. If you get him as your fourth starting pitcher, you're doing really well. I think you can be a little more aggressive uh, with one of your first three or possibly two of your first three, depending on how things fall, now, if, if Hendricks ends up being your fourth. Now, here's the thing. Everybody, or I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of the smart players See Hendricks at say whatever it is, 150, his, his ADP. So you're not alone in thinking, oh, okay, I got Hendricks waiting for me over there. So if you really want him, you're going to have to move him up a little. I'm not saying, you know, move him up three rounds or anything, but you know, maybe, you know, that pick you say I can get him next round. Maybe you can't get him next round and he's the pick you take there. So you secure his services. That's yeah, I think you're right. I mean, min picks 130. So you got to be a little closer to that than the 162 ADP <laughs> that we've seen uh, since the middle of January. Let's get to Kenta Maeda and David Price. I mean, I think they both are, are winners coming out of the trades that are close to being finalized now between uh, the Twins and Dodgers and then the Red Sox and Dodgers. 
Let's start with David Price. I mean, getting out of the AL East, all the things we talked about that work against Hinge and Ryu are now working for David Price. And David Price is one of those guys that while he's missed some time with injuries the last two seasons, his skills are still largely intact. He appears on that K-BB two-year leaderboard. He's in that 25 to 30 range. Everyone's going to see that and, and jump him up. But at what point does the price become too high on David Price in 2020? I think, you know, around that 150 range is what you're looking at. Because I, I, when I put in him, I put, I assume, of course, correction is coming. Uh, even, even I said, despite his failing health grade. And last season, his skills improved last season. But he only pitched about like 107 innings. You, you still have that, you know, the, the arm issue in, 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 in the back of your mind. But you really got to like to move to L.A., to move to the National League. Uh, and one of the things, the fact that he pitched really well his three seasons at Fenway, kind of that myth that the left-handed pitcher couldn't succeed at Fenway, he was much better. I think he had a 298 ERA at Fenway versus a four-something on the road. So that that I thought was pretty interesting, just for for a fun fact here, here or there, and he's a guy that's going to be a target for me, as long as it stays, as long as it doesn't get too higher than that. Let's just say Price versus Hendricks. I mean, if if that's where he, if that's where he's going in in that similar range, which one are you more comfortable with? Uh, I might be more comfortable with Hendricks because I'm not worried about the health. <laughs> But I probably want Price more because if he if Price could give me 170 innings, I think it could be really nice. And I, I think Chavez Ravine is a magical mound. And I always target Dodger pitchers in the past. This year, the Braves have kind of like been my been my uh, motto. But you know, stability. I'll take Hendricks for a little more upside. I'll take Price. Now let's talk about the former Dodger or soon-to-be former Dodger once the trade becomes official, Kenta Maeda, going into Minnesota. My snap reaction to the trade was the Dodgers have always had this excess depth in their rotation where they could go ahead and, and put Maeda in the bullpen and they could do it because he had incentives in his contract, so it kept the price down and they were able to just sort of work him into this multi-inning relief role, and it, he was good at it, so it, it looked like a pretty good move. I think it was more business-driven than skills-driven. The Twins don't have that luxury. As well as they're handling pitching uh, in their new regime, I don't see the Twins as the kind of team that can afford to just totally uh, punt on, on Maeda in September and, and make him go down that same relief path. Now, uh, Eno was pointing out they, they do have you know Rich Hill, and once Rich Hill's healthy, they start to take on a similar look. You know, Panita's going to be back from his suspension eventually. But I look at guys like Chassin and Dobnik and Smeltzer. I see a lot of guys that either won't be on the roster once we get to the end of the season or they're long relievers potentially if everybody else is healthy. Do you see Maeda as a winner with the move, even though it's NL to AL, leaving Los Angeles? Do you see him as a winner because of that potential to throw more innings in Minnesota? I do, and here's the reason. It's not necessarily for the more innings. I put leaving, you know, Chavez Ravine is never op- optimal, but his new home and that division should provide to be a profitable endeavor. He hasn't pitched more than 137 innings as a starter since his rookie year. I know he's pitched in the bullpen, and so you want to add up those innings, but I don't think it's the same. And I think what they are going to have to do come September is manage him a bit. And it doesn't mean I don't like him, but manage him for this reason in particular. Uh, if you believe they're going to win that division, they may be afforded that luxury as well. Because once the playoffs start, you got to believe it's Berrios, Hill, and Maeder that are probably their top three. I'm trying to think off the top of my head if I'm missing somebody. But those are the guys you really probably want to go to war with against, say, the Yankees or whoever else you got to face off against. Uh, Jake Odorizzi is used optimally by the Twins. I don't want to see him in a playoff game if I'm a Twins fan. So I think these are the arms you're really concentrating on, and you want to be fully, or not even fully, you want to be kind of fresh come that October series. So that's the way I think they might manipulate some innings with him. But he did increase the slider and change usage from 45 to 55%, which is another thing that should continue his success. 
We saw 175 and two-thirds innings from Maeda his first year with the Dodgers. I think that's probably where that regular season workload uh, mm-hmm. comes in for him in Minnesota. And the beauty, of course, being on the Twins, facing the rest of the AL Central, <laughs> rebuilding Tigers, uh, a very speed-heavy Royals team for the most part, certainly not a team that you fear. The White Sox are a lot better. The Indians have a good top-heavy lineup. So you basically have two two lineups that I think are at least you know average American League lineups and possibly better than average, but two very bad lineups with the Royals and Tigers that you can pick on and really do uh, a number against in terms of strikeouts, especially Uh, one more name that I want to get to on this episode, another Oakland, a Sean Mania. He's one of those guys. He doesn't throw real hard, clearly an important piece for them because again, they have so many young starters. They don't necessarily want to overwork this year, but we're talking about a guy that only threw 29 and two-thirds innings last season because he was coming back from a major injury. What's your expectation for Manaya? Do you think he can come close to the 2018 ratios when he had that 359 ERA, that 108 whip over 106 and two-thirds innings? Uh, I mean, here's the thing. I'm going to say this with Manaya and with Fulton Last season, I got him for nothing in fab. You know, I went a little earlier to get their services because they were on good teams and they were pitchers that had success in the past. And they were both incredible that final, whatever, two months or six weeks, whatever it was, and really helped me win, you know, really helped me have such a really good season. But both of them I'm a bit skeptical on. And like with with Manaya, I think your expecta- expectations have to be more closer to a four. That's kind of who he's been. If you look at the strikeout percentage, here's the real thing. I don't think that strike percentage holds that he had over those 30 innings pitched. I mean, I think a sober forecast, you know, because it was an extremely depressed Babbitt and a perfect left-on-base percentage. <laughs> so, I mean, unless you think that's going to happen again, uh you know, and it's kind of the same thing with Fulton His correction came in that second half when he got called back up by the home runs. He really corrected the home run ball, but everything else kind of stayed the same except the Babbitt became even lower. It was a good Babbitt, but it then became a 250 Babbitt with an 85% left on base. So these are two guys that I'm kind of hesitant. I'm not as, say, uh, super stoked about coming into this year. I think they have roles, but I'm not super stoked. I lied. I, I realize there's one more pitcher in this range we should definitely bring up, and I, I think he fits into uh, a bucket that we described on last week's show, Problem Players. Carlos Martinez. He's got an <laughs> ADP of 191, uh, apparently stretching back out as a starter this spring, and, and the Cardinals are going to try and go down that path, so it leaves us with some questions about how they're going to handle the ninth inning role. Do you think Carlos Martinez successfully makes the move back into the rotation? And are you interested in drafting him at that price? I think at his price, uh, he's the man of mystery right now, but I think at his price, it's kind of worth speculating on him because if he's not in the rotation, there's a good chance he's the closer. So you're either getting a guy that has upside as a starter or a possible closer in in an environment where saves are just so sporadic so what I put, it sounds like he's preparing for a role in the Cardinals' ro- rotation, but are the Cardinals copacetic about that? That I'm not sure. I don't know if he's going to be a starting pitcher again, but I think the fullback at his price is a possible closer, so that's why I would speculate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that checks out very logically. I just I don't know what they <laughs> want to see from him this spring before they make that decision to put him back in the bullpen. Uh, you're right, though. I mean, as a closer, especially, I think he'd be probably a top 10 guy. If we knew he was going to work the ninth inning start to finish all season, I'd feel pretty good about him. I think the strikeouts would be there and the ratios would be pretty good. He's one of those guys I've never been quite as excited about him as a starter as everybody else because the price has usually been a lot higher than it is this draft season. So now I feel like I'm taking a player that I've never really liked just because I'm getting a discount, which is always a strange place to be in. Um, but it, again, you're, you're buying skills even with the uncertain role, to uh, to borrow the old mantra from our friend Ron Chandler. 
That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can follow Matt on Twitter at CTM Baseball and check out part two of his starting pitcher preview when that drops. It should be coming up here later on Monday or on Tuesday. If you're not already a subscriber, you can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash podcast. Last week, of course, marked the launch of our draft kit. So we have lots of articles, rankings, pretty much everything you could want to get ready for the 2020 season. For Matt Modica, I'm Derek Van Riffel. We're back on Wednesday with an episode of Under the Radar. Uh-huh.